Welcome to the Conservation Queens podcast. We are love the earth and have a passion for living a more eco-friendly life. We are real life Sioux employees. As always, nothing that we say reflects our organizations and all thoughts and opinions are our own. Please keep in mind, we try to keep the podcast around PG-13. So if you have younger listeners, you may want to review the content beforehand. Uh, I'm Emily. I'm Quincy. I'm Katie. And I'm Abby. And with that, let's talk about stuff. We did it. That was good. That was a good intro, guys. I think it's We're an every it. other week type thing. That's what I'm learning. Is that one week we nail it and the next week's so like next time down the drain. All right. Okay. Um, let's get started. So our fan shout out this week um, is everybody who voted on our poll from a couple of weeks ago. Um, we're just going to work through all um, in order of votes. So the last the first uh, winner was the poop episode. So if you've listened to that, <laughs> great. all enjoyed that. Um, and then it the was the up, shit. Um, but with that, so this week's topic um, is the runner-up from that poll, which is ocean zones. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but first, Katie, let's talk about conservation updates. Yeah, I got three for you today. Two great, one not so great. Uh, the first one is kind of a personal thing uh, going on at my facility starting in April. And I know a couple of other facilities are doing this or at least advertising it more for April. Silly. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's called, be more orangutan, it looks like. It's a conservation initiative called Gorillas on the Line. Uh, basically, the concept is that a gorilla is calling you. Are you going to pick up the phone and answer? <laughs> answer the call for help. That's the that's the, the tagline. Anyway. Um, yes. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a global initiative that was actually created by the Gorilla Species Survival Plan uh, through the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. So when, again, people are like, oh, the zoos don't actually help with conservation. Uh, yeah, they do. They literally create organizations like this. They're doing the conservation work. But anyways, the actual goal of the gorillas on the line campaign is to recycle your old electronics so look uh for and i guess this is more zoo news but whatever it's fine uh it doesn't have to be look for your local zoos that are doing cell phone or electronics drives you could always bring your old electronics to best buy apple store any electronics store you name it um and they will recycle it they will take it and they will make it into something new specifically there's a little mineral in your phones called coltan it is mined where gorillas lived um mainly in the democratic republic of congo uh and it's you know when we're mining for this we are destroying their habitats and it is putting quite a number on their uh populations that are currently left so if we recycle this mineral instead of mining for it, it does a long, go a long way to help protect those habitats. Uh, Coltan not only found in your cell phones, it is found in any rechargeable battery. Like anything that has a rechargeable battery has Coltan. That is what helps the battery from not overheating when it is getting recharged. So recycle your electronics, dang it. Um, but definitely look for that happening uh, either in this month, I saw a lot of zoos doing it, or next month as well. So, check it out. 
gorillas are calling, will you answer them? <laughs> if a gorilla called me, I honestly <laughs> do not think I would answer. Oh like, my I gosh. would answer the call to help. Uh, in other conservation news, this one, not so great. Uh, microplastics are, uh, have now been found in human blood. Ooh, how? Yay. Okay, well, I, I will explain how. What, what do you mean how? Like, how did we get to a point where we have literally used so much plastic that... No, 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 no. That part I get. But, like, how did oh. they actually get into the, like... Bloodstream? Yeah. Polymers. The answer is polymers. Yes, that is the correct answer. So... Uh, okay. I'm just I mean, to, to put it in perspective, scientists, and this is from the article, uh, have detected microplastics near the peak of Mount Everest and in the Marina Trench... And even in baby poop. So we'll get to it. Now we found it in, you guessed it, folks, human blood. Uh, it was a paper published by Environment International. Researchers found plastic in the blood. And this is interesting because it's a very, very small sample size. Like, I would like to look into more of where this research was done and whatnot. But uh, plastic was found in the blood of 17 of 22 study participants. Or about 77%. But again, super small sample size there. Uh, But it's the first indication that we, in fact, do have polymer particles in our blood. Uh, And, you know, they're looking into research to extend the research, increase the sample size, number of polymers assessed, and uh, more. But they took blood samples from anonymous healthy adults and looked for plastics that were between 700 and 500,000 nanometers. Uh, That's real tiny. 700 nanometers is about 140 times smaller than the width of a human hair. So we're talking some really tiny stuff. Uh, The most widely encountered plastic polymer that was found in about 50% of the blood donors was uh, the, it's called PET. I don't really want to try to pronounce the full name. It's commonly found in disposable water bottles. Shocking. Uh, the second common most one found is called PS, and it was, uh, which is used for food packaging and polystyrene foam. We Is there styrofoam it. in our blood? Yep. <laughs> uh, I hate this planet. It's fine. So the guy that actually, like, wrote, or one of the researchers on the, uh, you know, whole thing said that as a result of his research, he's been cutting down on his own exposure to plastics by limiting single-use plastics and covering food and drinks to avoid plastics entering that way. The participants could have been exposed to microplastics through the air, water, and food, but also through personal care products like toothpaste or lip gloss that might have been accidentally ingested, dental polymers, implants, or tattoo ink residues uh, as other things that they speculated upon. But, you know, if all of this is to say, we should maybe cut down on our plastic use. I don't know. (laughs) Crazy concept. It's actually going to tie in quite nicely, I think, to the topic of this episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, But that does bring me to my last piece of conservation news, which is kind of a good counter to this last one. It's about Bebot. Have you guys heard about Bebot? Yes. No. Bebot is perfect. Bebot's real cute, and he is a beach cleaning robot that scours for microplastics at Brevard County Beaches, which is here in Florida. Cool. Uh, he's, He's got like a little, it's like a little white robot, uh, 
on the beach, but it's really cute because he's got a little B, but it's like the Superman symbol, but instead of an S, it's a B <laughs> on it, which I think is adorable. Uh, but basically, it is able to travel around beaches and pick up debris, clean up the beach. Uh, cigarette butts seem to be the number one thing that it finds, among other things like straws, dirty diapers, aluminum foil from grills, cups, beer bottle caps, uh, and lots of beer bottles and broken glass. So, dang you, spring breakers. But anyways. Oh, he's so cute! Isn't he adorable? And he has a lot of sponsors on him. Like, I can't really read most of them from the picture, but I do see a four ocean symbol. There is a four ocean. Which we love. Surfing USA license plate. And then Keep Florida Beautiful are the three that I see. Yeah, so he... the nonprofit organization called Keep Rivard Beautiful is the first in the nation to use this new robot, uh, which is really cool. So, I don't know. I love it. We need more. We need about a billion. They're like, oh my god, it's literally Wally. Do you want to hear well, about move on. Australia? Kind of. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. Go Great. for it. So Let's in- get some zoo news in here. In this week's zoo news, the Denver Zoo is opening a new down under area. Wow. Are you a spokesperson for Outback Steakhouse? (laughs) You know what? It's going to have, instead of having like real plants, there's going to be little (laughs) blooming onions everywhere. That's amazing. (laughs) Uh, That would be very cool. Denver Zoo. uh, Get on that. Yeah. Hit us up and we'll help you design. Um, But yeah, they're going to have like a little kangaroo walk and other cool, cute stuff. Um. In other zoo news, there is a baby blue-eyed black lemur born oh, at Jacksonville Zoo. It's so cute. It is, like, uh, I say red-ruffed lemurs are my favorite lemur, but looking at this little baby, mm, they're real cute, too. So, I call them beebles for blue-eyed black lemur. Um, <laughs> beebles are the only primate other than humans to have naturally blue eyes for their whole life. Which is very cute. Um, and they're critically endangered, so it's a big win. <laughs> Shocking. I, I, Baby I mean, lemurs, you know. <laughs> Madagascar, man. Um, some sad zoo news, but I had to include this one. Um, unfortunately, the male tiger at the Minnesota Zoo has passed away. It was due to complications during a surgery. And the reason that this one X, uh, matters a lot to me is because I was there when he came in. Oh. Um, and his name, it, it, relevant, was Putin, um, but he was from the <laughs> Netherlands. And I swear to God, he is the largest Amur tiger I've ever seen in my entire life. I think his shoulders were like three and a half feet off the ground. Oh, that's a big boy. He's He was huge. He's a huge boy. Um <laughs> He was 12 years old and unfortunately passed away due to complications in surgery. Old. Yeah. Yeah, he was a good boy, though. I liked him. Um, And in happy zoo news, I thought this was so cool. Zoo Atlanta has announced that they have enhanced their African savanna exhibit for those who are visually impaired or auditorily impaired. So they have an initiative called Zoo for All, which is trying to make um zoo atlanta a place that anybody no matter what their abilities are can come and enjoy the zoo and i thought that was really cool because i think zoos are very visual 
and very auditory this and being able true. to have other things to experience is awesome. That's great. Yeah. So now we all have to go to Zoo Atlanta and support them because they're doing a good stuff. I mean, I've been wanting to go there for a very long time as I mean, well as too. the Georgia Aquarium. So I'm, I'm game. Well, Katie, um, if we didn't have tickets to a show tomorrow night, <laughs> we could just go the opposite I mean, direction. Yeah, Abby and I are taking a trip to Zoo Tampa. Maybe we, you know, we should put that on our Conservation Queen's social media. We should document our trip. Honestly, I was thinking it'd be kind of fun. <laughs> Katie and Abby's date to the zoo. Let's do it. All Our right. Game. Tune in um, from when you watch that or listen to this, I guess tomorrow. Tune yeah. into the past. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. Follow us on Instagram. All right. Emily. Beluga News. Yeah. Beluga News, the best news. Um, so I couldn't find a whole lot this week, but that's okay. Um, I stumbled across an article. Um, so as I mentioned on the last episode, it's about that time in the spring when the Cook Inlet belugas are in the um, Cook Inlet, hanging out, eating food, being belugas. Um, but this means that there is a lot of valuable research that is happening while they're there. Um, this research that was just recently published actually doesn't even look specifically at belugas, but it's uh, tangentially related because they studied other whale species to see how different, like, different threats that affect other whales could possibly be affecting belugas also. Um, so they compared a lot of data from um, currently per NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, two of the biggest threats to belugas are prey availability and contaminants, but they are ranked as a medium and low concern, respectively. Um, and the research that was done on the other whales showed that those two things, prey availability and contaminants, are actually probably much larger of a threat. And we should probably raise the level of concern here. Um, so we're doing our best um, to help these cook inlet belugas. They are critically endangered. There's only about 270 of them left. So the more that we know about how to protect them, the more we can protect them. Which is great. Um, but with that, it's time. It's time, kids. For <laughs> possibly the worst singing you'll ever hear in your whole life. Maybe we should just, like, cut it here and put in the audio. No, no, no. Can, no, no, no. You have that. to sing it. We don't want to get copyrighted. <laughs> yeah, come on, Emily. I can't even do like the beginning part of it because I just like to say the really fast. I mean, I can do the beginning part. Yeah, I I can help too. We got this. Oh, Oh. (laughs) let's name the zones, the zones, the zones. zones. Let's Let's name the zones of the ocean sea. There's epipelagic, mesopelagic, bathypelagic, abyssopelagic. All the rest (laughs) are too deep for you and me to see. (laughs) Oh, that was. That was really good. Very impressive. Beautiful. Uh, So with that beautiful song, uh, I'm sure you all may have guessed the topic. I also mentioned it about five minutes ago. Um, (laughs) That is the zones of the ocean. Um, The ocean, for those of you who don't know, uh, is divided into four main zones plus a bonus zone. I thought you were about to say the ocean, for those who don't know, is the largest body of water. <laughs> we shouldn't laugh. We shouldn't laugh because like, there are people that have never been to the stupid. ocean. 
know what the ocean is. Anyway, yes, but they may not uh, know as much about it as some of us do. No, but they know it's a big body of water. Well, that's why I told them about the zones. (laughs) And not about the fact that it's a giant body of water. Listeners, can you tell that we've had long days today? We're doing our best, okay? Um, So let's get back to it. Um, The ocean is divided into four main zones, which we will be discussing at length, um, as well as a bonus zone, um, which I believe Kenzie will be covering. So we'll get to that. Um, These zones are designated uh, by a couple of things. Um, There are boundaries based on depth, based on light, um, and some other important boundaries, which we'll cover in just a little bit. Um, The zones are also differentiated by the animals that live there. Um, I wrote a bullet here that just says the ocean is a mystery. Um, and that's because <laughs> ain't that the truth? <laughs> I was saying, no further explanation needed. Keep going. Really? I mean, you'll see as we go deeper and deeper into the ocean, we know less and less about it. Um, but we'll get there eventually. Um, so get ready for oceanography 101 featuring professor Emily, AKA me and my loyal friends who have decided to appease me and do this. So <laughs> this is a good topic though. I learned stuff that I didn't know. So I appreciated it. All right, so we're going to get started at the top. So picture the ocean like, um, hmm. what has layers? Not an onion. Layers a parfait. Like parfait. Parfait. <laughs> Perfect. We are going to talk about the parfait of the ocean. Um, and we're going to start at the very tippy top with the whipped cream, okay? Like- so we want to be clear. Ocean zones, parfait. <laughs> Mangroves. <laughs> Burrito. Burrito. Oh my god, I forgot about that. <laughs> Me too. I knew where she was going with that immediately. <laughs> we are going to have a whole smorgasbord of ecological treats for you by the end of this, but alas. Um, so, the epipelagic zone. So, this is also known as the photic zone. Um, photic meaning light. So, this is the zone where the light is. Um, this is the surface water of the ocean where you can have sunlight. Um, this snorkeling. Yeah, exactly. Um, there are the lots, lots of primary producers here because they can make food from the sunlight. Things like algae. Um, that that's what's going to be there, um, as well as <laughs> and all over and, and everything else because that's the world that we live in right now. Well, yes, but. <laughs> We're talking about beneficial algae and not like invasive macroalgae. Great. Specifically. Um, Warmth and light are the two key indicators of this zone. This zone is generally a lot warmer and obviously much brighter than all of the other zones. Um, Depth-wise, the epipelagic zone typically is considered to be the first 200 meters or 650 feet. Um, Technically, like the official divider is the epipelagic zone extends to where the surface light is 1% of the light at at the actual surface. So you can get all the way down to where there's only 1% of surface light, and that is still considered the epipelagic zone because the sunlight still penetrates that far. Um, The epipelagic zone, once you get about 10 feet underwater, you lose all red red wavelength light. Um, Once you get about 30 feet underwater, you start to lose yellows too. Um, And by the time you get to about 100 feet or more, Um, you're really only getting blues and green or blues and purple light. Um, And we'll talk about why that's important in just a little bit. But 
Um, so one of the most important things about the epipelagic zone is this is where your primary producers are living. Um, so on land, a primary producer would be something like a plant that's making food from the sun. And in the ocean, we have algae. Um, these algae that we're talking about that are our primary producers are single-celled organisms. Um, the two uh, common ones are called Prochlorococcus and Synecococcus. Um, and they are responsible for over 50% of the oxygen on Earth. So okay. screw you, trees. I love you, trees. But screw you, trees. <laughs> the algae you? doesn't get the respect it deserves, okay? It's like, it's like that meme with the, what is it, like a dog and a cat? And the yes. dog's getting, like, cuddled. Yes. And it says, like, trees on the dogs. And then the cat looks like it's crying in the background. Like, you know, yes. algae doing yes. most of the work. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I read I read several articles today about the epipelagic zone. But... The general consensus is that between 50 to 80% of the Earth's oxygen is produced by these algae that live in the epipelagic zone across the world. So Um, the the trees are the kids that take all the credit for the group project. Yes. And the algae is out here grinding to get that A, okay? Um, But yeah, very important. Thank your local uh, Senecococcus and Prochlorococcus today. Um. Now, what lives in the epipelagic zone besides a whole bunch of algae? Uh, Pretty much everything else. Uh, 90% of marine life in the world's oceans is contained in the epipelagic zone. Um, That's because, like I said, the primary producers are there. So things that eat the primary producers are there. Things like krill and other zooplankton. Uh, Then you get things that eat the zooplankton. So we get fish and we get bigger animals like a manta ray or what have you. And then we get things that eat those things. So you can see we have pretty much the entire food web is up here in the sunshine zone. Which um, makes we will... you wonder what the heck could be below that. Probably nothing, right? Probably nothing. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, so the depth actually does depend on um, the, the turbidity or the like murkiness of the water. So in areas like the tropics where the water is really clear, um, that photic zone does extend all the way to that like 600 feet mark. Um, however, in places where the water is a lot murkier, that photic zone is actually going to be much shorter just because it's going to get darker a lot quicker. Um, because there are so many primary producers using sunlight, um, there's actually not a lot of nutrients. There's just a lot of sunlight. Um, so the, the um, epipelagic zone or the photic zone is often called a nutrient desert. Um, all the nutrients are elsewhere, and we'll get to that also in a little bit. Hmm. Um, now there are three important things that also the bottom of the photic zone or the epipelagic zone besides light. Those three things are salt, temperature, and density. And they all have very fancy science words. So we're going to go through those. So the first one, the salt. So the salt saltiness, the saltiness of the ocean does vary. Um, and there is a distinct, I think it's a decline hold on let me look at the graph there's a graph incline. it's an incline <laughs> for salt yeah salinity increases okay yeah you're right okay so there's a distinct... i have it written down that's the only way i know <laughs> well i have the graph pulled up i just hadn't looked at it um <laughs> i was actually watching a youtube video to refresh myself because it's been so long since i learned all of this um, but there's a distinct increase in the salt concentration the further down you go, um, right around the 600 to 800 foot mark, um, and that's called the halocline. So it kind of gradually declines in those first 600, or gradually increases in those first 600 feet down, and then it greatly increases after that. 
the next thing is the thermocline. Um, thermo meaning heat, so the temperature. Now, in your mid-latitudes and lower latitudes, like around the equator, the surface waters are obviously very, very warm. And then the further down you go, the much colder it gets. Um, in the polar latitudes, it's going to be cold at the top, too. It's the poles, it's cold, right? So in your mid to lower latitudes, you have this thing called the thermocline, where the temperature is pretty consistent at the top. You start to go down deeper. It starts to get a little colder. You hit that 600-foot mark. All of a sudden, it is very, very cold because there's no sunlight. Real cold. Um, so now we have high salt, low temperature. And then the last one is density. Um, and this one's called the pycnocline. <laughs> so we have the halocline, the thermocline, and the pycnocline. So again, the density as the salt concentration increases and the temperature decreases, the density of the – see, I sound like an idiot. Um, either that or I sound like someone who knows far too much. There's a this fine, fine line there. You're at the professor <laughs> level right now, so just keep going. I'm doing my best. Um, so the pycnocline is notes. where the density goes um, up. And if you were to look at all three of these graphs overlapping each other – the sharp, sharp changes are all happening right at the bottom of this, the photic zone. Um, and so that keeps a lot of the nutrients below the photic zone. Um, and again, another reason why the nutrients above the photic zone just really aren't really there. There's just not a lot going on. There's a lot of animals and a lot of algae, but not a lot of nutrients. Um, but that completes my brief-ish synopsis of the epipelagic zone. Um, because the next one, I think, is actually the most exciting. So I'll let Abby take it away. All right. I've been, I've been practicing this. Are you ready? Oh, I'm boy. so ready. All right. The mesopelagic zone, 200 <laughs> to 1,000 meters below the ocean surface. Void of light, super salty in pressure. This zone is also known as the twilight zone. I- <laughs> I love it. I'm dead. We should have gotten. <laughs> what the heck is that guy's name? Rosalind. Thank you. I was trying to do my best impression. It wasn't good, but I think I made myself I laugh. I, pre- I knew exactly what you were going for. So it's well pretty done. good. So basically, like, I'm just oh, saying. Guys, he did die in 1975. So never well, mind. <laughs> yeah, call him sense. up, Katie. <laughs> Just reach out through. Just reach out to the Twilight Zone. I mean, Kenzie's a time traveler. Kenzie, do the solid. (laughs) Wait, you want me to get Rod Sterling for y'all? Yeah, yes, please. No, no worries. I'm having dinner with him next Tuesday. Oh, perfect, perfect. All right. Basically, we're getting to the mesopelagic zone. Is the next zone of the ocean the yogurt? I guess in the parfait. Um, it is 200 meters to a thousand meters both a thousand meters below the ocean surface and it's also known as the twilight zone just like um emily's zone the epipelagic zone is once in a while known as the daylight zone too or the photic zone so mm-hmm. we're all talking about the same thing here they're just the different names but i think the twilight zone is funnier to me we're trying to ungate keep oceanography for you all yeah there you, there you go. go so the twilight zone um as far as oceans go i have no idea about the other one um light is dim and because it is so dim, like Emily said, that means that there's no photosynthesis that can happen. But because there is just enough light, you can detect, at least in the upper twilight zone, the differences between day and night. Um, but it's like hard. So I don't know. <laughs> dark versus 
darker. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's dark versus nothing. <laughs> I guess. Um, the interesting fact I learned about this zone is that it has it is home to more fish than the rest of the zones combined. Huh. Is that by mass or by species? I think it's by mass. Okay. That makes um, sense. Because not species, because there'd be more species in the epipelagic zone, but yeah. Oh yeah. Mass and we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. So as Emily was just talking about, conditions get harsher as you move farther down in the water column. So light and oxygen and temperature decrease with depth, while pressure and salinity increase with depth. We already talked about it. We're going to move on. Um, the part that people think is interesting, some of the animals that live in the mesopelagic zone have really weird adaptations to cope with the low light condition oh wait i forgot an important point can i interject you yeah okay so abby is getting ready to talk about very fun things like uh different types of camouflage that are really good in the mesopelagic zone but i forgot to mention the most important type of camouflage which is featured in the photic zone oh yeah this and will make no sense if you don't talk about that <laughs> yes uh i hadn't written a by a bullet but i must have just skipped right over it um so counter shading let's talk about counter shading kids um, so let's picture, um, what kind of animal do I want to pick today? The answer is pretty much everything that lives in the photic zone, okay. um, has counter shading. So a shark is a great example. Thank you, Katie. Stingrays. Um, ooh, stingrays even better. Okay. We, we could just name every <laughs> animal that lives in the photic Kenzie, zone. you go. They're all counter shaded. Uh, let's start, let's do shark. Cause that's a pretty easy one for people to picture. Um, and let's do a great white shark. So if I'm a great white shark, what color is my belly? White. White. And it's white. And if I'm a great white shark, what color is my back? Like dark. Grayish blue. Dark grayish blue. Yeah, sure. So if I am a great white shark, what's something that I might eat? A dolphin. A fish. Oh, a dolphin. I like that answer. So we were talking about I, how dolphins are evil again today. So it's true. So if I'm, a, if I'm a great white shark and I'm cruising and I'm minding my own business and I'm looking for something delicious, um, I don't want to be seen because I'm a great white shark and I'm on the hunt and I don't want my prey to see me. And you're so big. I have this handy-dandy counter shading. Now, if I'm a dolphin and I'm minding my own business, I might look down and I might see, hmm, that ocean below me, it's pretty dark. <laughs> it's kind of moving, though. Weird. It's kind of <laughs> moving. I don't know. It's kind of weird. So if I'm the dolphin, I might see the back, the gray back of the great white shark, but it is going to blend in really, really well with the dark ocean depths below. Now, let's flip it and let's say the great white shark is above the dolphin. Well, you could also say just the great white shark looking at the dolphin. That's true. Well, we're going to say the we're going to say the shark is higher than the dolphin in the water column right now. And say the dolphin looks up and all of a sudden he sees the white sunlight above him and that white belly of the great white shark is also going to blend right in. So countershading is a very effective form of camouflage from above and below. Um, most animals that live in the photic zone have countershading. Now, this is different in the mesophotic zone, which is what Abby is about to talk about. Yeah. So, a lot of animals have weird adaptations to low light conditions. Uh, one of the coolest ones, uh, I think, is bioluminescence. It's so cool. Ooh, so, like, ah. our anglerfish, iconic. Our jellyfish, brainless. Home jellies. Our salps. Which are basically jellies, but they're not, but they are. It's true. That's all I got about those. I don't really know any much about them. They're a colonial organism that's made of jelly, but isn't a jellyfish. That's frustrating. Anyway. Um, <laughs> they make great food for leatherbacks. Anyway. 
anything that's jelly makes a good food for leather bags. Salps and tunicates are kind of like, um, you know, those like jelly tube things that you used to play with as a kid. Oh, yeah. They're like that, but really, really big and like much uh, de- more delicate. Okay, that's good. They won't break when you play with them at Target on the floor. No. Um, a lot of the animals that live in this zone have a silvery color, which reflects the light back. So it makes it more difficult to be spotted. Um, a lot of the animals have well-developed um, eyes that are good at seeing in the dark. And they face upward, so they are able to see the prey above them, which is kind of freaky, but pretty cool. And then, this is the thing that Emily needed to explain countershading. There's also counter-illumination, which is something I learned about today. Counter-illumination is literally the coolest thing ever. It is. It's so creamy. It's like adaptive countershading. Yeah, so different animals that live in this zone, if there is a little bit of light, they literally will bioluminesce on just one side of their body, to mimic counter shading. It's wild. Crazy. It's genius. They are literally like changing colors to blend in with light. Magic. Oh, magic. It's so cool. Um, what you've all been waiting for, the weird animals that live in the mesopelagic zone. <laughs> We've got squids. We've got cuttlefish. We've got some zooplankton. We've got wolf eels, which are neither wolves nor are they eels. Confusing. We've got snipe eels. Which are neither, well, which are not snipes, but they are eels. <laughs> we have swordfish, which is like sometimes, but we're going to count it. We've got some chain cat sharks. They fluoresce, which is cool. Uh, we've got dragonfish, which is like the noodlier cousin of an anglerfish. Uh, we've got saber tooth fish, which are now going to haunt my nightmares. We've got prickly sharks. And then we have pearl sides, which is what revealed the secret of the mesopelagic zone. Or, wait a second. It reveals <laughs> the secret of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> oh, crap, an ad! Wow. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> there it is. All right. That's the last time I'll do that. Um, so I'm going to tell you a story. During World War II, there was a lot of sonar being used. And it was picking up on a false bottom of the ocean. And people noticed that the bottom of the ocean kept moving closer to the ocean surface as the sun went down. Which makes no sense because isn't ocean surface rock? Question mark? Question mark. <laughs> uh, the answer is yes. But what they were actually picking up were millions and millions and millions and trillions of animals, especially pearl sides doing what's called lateral migration or vertical migration. Diurnal they do it every migration. day. Diurnal migration. Um, I was going to sing the other Mr. Ray song, but I can't remember it. Something said that about migration. So if you measure by mass, this is the largest migration in the world. So even bigger than the great migration, the wildebeest do, these little teeny little animals Crazy. make is more. Isn't that weird? That is crazy. They're so cool. And it happens every single day. So what happens is the sun sets and at night, the mesopelagic animals move to the epipelagic zone to feed on the zooplankton and the krill that live close to the surface. So they eat at nighttime. They're nocturnal, basically. As the sun begins to rise, the animals move back into the mesopelagic zone to hide from predators, which is really, really cool. And then this discovery 
that they made helped fill in a lot of gaps in the food webs because they were like, well, I think this eats this and this eats this, but there's like weird gaps and like whatever. And when they f- first discovered this vertical migration, they were like, oh, this makes more sense now. Um, because there's a lot of different animals that live in the MPZ and they uh, make a lot of poop, which I know is last episode, but we're going to talk about it again. The poop falls into the lower zones of the ocean, which creates marine snow, which is one of the most abundant food sources for bottom-feeding animals, like the ones that live in the bathypelagic zone. Yeah. Yeah, I have the bath zone. That's what I'm going to be calling it. Um, (laughs) I was a little disappointed to find out that it is not, in fact, where fun little bubble bath ocean parties take place. (laughs) Abby jokingly said it's where mermaids go to bathe, (laughs) which I thought was funny. But, uh, you know, now while it sounds like it's a fun time like that, it's actually kind of my own personal nightmare zone is what I found. (laughs) Uh, The animals are most commonly found at this depth at the ocean uh, and at this depth and pressure are fish, mollusks, crustaceans, and jellyfish. Note crustaceans and jellyfish. Are we about talking about crabs again? No, I just disregarded any of that <laughs> for today's episode uh, for my own sanity. But anyways, here are some fast facts about the bathypelagic zone. Uh, Abby had the twilight zone. I get the midnight zone, and I don't have a fun sound song for that. There's so not I a seventies TV show to help you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, I don't know, what's what? I'm not even going to try. So Midnight Zone is about between 1,000 and 4,000 meters deep, which is about two miles deep for your, you know, because I've read like 1,000 to 4,000 meters deep and I'm like, okay, that sounds, I don't know. I don't know how that sounds because I don't use meters. So I looked it up for you all. Because <laughs> America about is stupid. Two mi- it, it's true. About two miles deep into the ocean uh there it has an average temperature about 39 degrees fahrenheit chilly uh and there is total absence of sunlight in this zone so it be dark now with that being said uh it does contain quite a few bioluminescent organisms uh but animals that live in this zone rely on detritus 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 Thank you. Wow. Detritus for food and other animals living in that zone. That's the marine snow is detritus, right? Yes. Um, If you guys have ever seen any videos of like shipwrecks or um, like videos of the ocean floor in a lot of areas, um, there's this constant like staticky, snowy looking stuff. That's Mm -hmm. the marine snow. And is it? It's yeah. yeah, I was just going to say it. uh, Detritus means... Uh, particles that result from disintegration so poop Poop and dead animals wow why didn't we talk about that last episode i don't know it's wild because poop Uh, was a better subject than dead animals i guess you're right all right so other fun facts uh black and red are the predominant colors of the animals that live in this zone uh because red is not visible at these deaths that is how dark it is there like, that's just crazy to me. So if you are an animal in the zone and you are the color red. You're invisible. You have the invisibility cloak from Harry Potter. Congratulations on evolution. 
but that being said, any bioluminescence is usually blue, uh, since, again, red is not visible at these depths. Now, the most common mollusk in this zone is the vampire squid, and I just wanted to give a little shout-out to the vampire squid, because they're kind of a ridiculous animal. Uh, they're really cool. First off, you don't know what they look like, please look them up. They're these fun little-looking, uh, you know red squid like animals uh they're really cool uh they're okay their scientific name is vampirotheus infernalis which literally translates to vampire squid from hell <laughs> <laughs> like oh, yeah. what so they are also uh, the only known members of the order vampiromorph which is in the class cephalopod, cephalopoda. Um, but they combine features from both octopuses and squids, cuttlefish, etc. Which oh, suggests that... Aliens. Yes, so exactly. Right. It suggests that they may represent an ancestral line between the two groups. They're not technically two true squids. Uh, they're named for their blue eyes, reddish-brown skin, and webbing between their arms. Now, the reason they are called vampire squids is because they're kind of terrifying. Uh, <laughs> they can turn themselves inside out uh, to use its spiky tentacles what? on the underside to deter predator predators or capture prey. Yes. Uh, if you look up a picture, it is actually, like, it looks like they have, I want to say teeth. I don't know. It looks like like a ah, cactus underneath them. Yeah, looks like, like a leatherback turtle's mouth. <laughs> yeah, I just like that can't be fun. But oh, the octonauts uh, one is cute though. Oh, of course it is. It's octonauts. But the tentacles are often thrown over prey like a net from above. So imagine you're just a little fish swimming in the bathypelagic zone. You're like, I heard there was a bubble bath party down here, and then well, bam, the vampire squid jumps on top of you with its horrifying. It's a gill net. Yeah, pretty so much. So what's killing all the other animals in the epiphylactic zone. <laughs> yeah. So, they, uh, they're there. Uh, Abby mentioned this in her zone, but they're also in the bathypelagic zone, anglerfish. I want to talk a little more about those hard movies <laughs> of the ocean. Uh, as you all know, anglerfish from Finding Nemo is probably where people actually started to know that that was a real thing that lives in the ocean. Uh, that was another inaccuracy of Finding Nemo. They they did not end up in the bathypelagic zone at any point. They would never have gone there. They would never have survived. Join us on Patreon to hear what we think about the rest of the Finding <laughs> Nemo animals. So anyways, uh, anglerfish, I just want to make a note. Y'all know they, they have huge, long teeth. They're terrifying. They're bioluminescent. That's how they lure their prey in. But the crazy thing about them is we... In, like, researching um, and just learning more about anglerfish, when scientists first started capturing them, they noticed that all of the specimens that they were capturing were females. And they were like, where are all the males? Like, what does a male anglerfish look like? Does it look different? Yeah, turns out they look uh, real different. Uh, Male anglerfish are only a few centimeters in size, and almost all of them uh, had what appeared to be uh, parasites attached to them. So uh, turns out those were the males. 
like those were like the parasites were attached to the females uh so they literally just uh hook onto a female and they're like great i'm just gonna live here now and that's literally how that goes and then she absorbs them the end the end like what what uh so crazy stuff it's ideal honestly Ah, I don't know. Tough life, I guess, for the male anglerfish. But anyway, uh, other honorable mentions of animals that are in the bathypelagic zones are swallow. Uh, they have multiple names that they go by, like swallower, gulper, or pelican eels. Have y'all ever heard of these monstrosities? Yes, I don't scary. like them. Yeah, so they get the name gulper or pelican eels because they literally can like open their mouths super wide. And it is as scary as that sounds. Uh, you know, I would, I would honestly caution you to look up a picture of these guys. You know, do so of your own free will. And just know that what you're going to see is a little terrifying. Uh, they are just one of the many wonders of this zone. Uh, otherwise, the one last thing I want to touch on with the bathypelagic zone is sperm whales. Woo! They hunt down there. That's pretty cool. We love sperm whales. They're pretty great. Largest of all the toothed whales. Uh, They routinely dive down this deep into these really deep depths for about 45 minutes, up to 45 minutes, to hunt for food. Mainly squids. That's why they are going into this zone a lot. Uh, Sperm whales are listed as endangered for a number of reasons, including uh, things like... uh, Shipping practices, risk of entanglement, uh, loss of food sources, and ocean uh, noise pollution. So, You want to know what else dives into the bathypelagic zone? Is it beaked whales? It sure is! Oh, yeah, no! Beaked whales, baby. But you can oh, learn more about so them, in our, them in our beaked whale episode. Yeah, I... they're brave souls, those little whales. Well, they're very large whales for venturing down into that zone. I give them, give them kudos for that. Well done. Well done, whales. Scary. And that's it for my zone. And just when you think it can't get any scarier. Because what comes after midnight? Into the unknown. <laughs> aliens. Aliens come after midnight. <laughs> Welcome to the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the bone-crushing pressure and soul-sucking darkness that is the abyssopelagic zone, everybody. It's Home literally to called the that. Strangest creatures, including myself. That's where time travelers come from! <laughs> Makes sense to me. <laughs> Alright, y'all, let's get into it. So, the abyssopelagic zone comes from the term abyss, which in Greek means no bottom. Uh, this zone is typically found between 4,000 to 6,000 meters deep, and it's characterized by near free about 36 to 37 degrees Fahrenheit or 2 to 3 degrees Celsius. That's cold. Uh, also, like- there's no light. <laughs> it's just pitch black. Nothing. Just absolutely <laughs> nothing. <laughs> uh, the abyssopelagic zone also encompasses most of the ocean floor and is succeeded only by the hadopelagic zone, which we'll get into a little later. So, you may be asking, Kenzie, how does anything live down there? How Kenzie, do how does anything there? live down there? <laughs> I don't know. It's a great question. Just like I have learned to adapt to immense pressure and no <laughs> little in little light, so to have the creatures that call this place home. 
We killed Abby. I, I think we did. I think we did. This is uh, what it's like working in an aquarium. Little to no light and immense pressure. This is what it's like after finishing reading Song of Achilles. <laughs> <laughs> because the absolute pitch darkness. There are, like, no primary producers here. And there's definitely no plant life to help sustain other organisms. So just like the benthopelagic zone, many of the nutrients obtained comes from the detritus or decaying organic matter that sinks down from the upper zones. One example of this would actually be a whale fall. Which My was, favorite. Yeah, How we're gonna bury Emily when she dies. I can't Pretty wait. Much. Yeah, I mean, I can right. wait, but it's gonna be very good. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll wait like at least another good sixty years. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, well, essentially, uh, listeners, if you don't know what a whale fall is, it's pretty awesome. But what happens is that when the whale passes, its body will float down to the ocean floor and it provides food and nutrients to a lot of the scavengers that live below. A whale carcass has actually been estimated to support an entire food chain for up to a year. In fact, uh, NOAA actually has a really interesting video showcasing a real life whale fall on their website. If listeners are interested in looking up more, it's pretty fun. You just I'm, see a bunch of on top of like this half skeletal whale just going to town. It's a good time <laughs> for the octopus. <laughs> but speaking of octopus, uh, Kenzie, what kind of animals actually live in the abyssal pelagic zone? Well, many of the animals here are invertebrates, but fish as well. Uh, one example is a Dumbo octopus in terms of our invertebrate oh. friends. Really cute. Recently discovered, too, right? Just a few years back? Yeah, they keep discovering more different types of them, too. I was going to yeah. say, it had to be at least before 2003, or I guess 2000, because Nemo came out in 2003, and Pearl That's is a flapjack octopus, which is a type of Dumbo octopus. Mm-hmm. Just the wrong pelagic zone. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. Again, go to the join us on Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also something called a tripod fish, so essentially extended fins that they use to kind of help them stabilize as they face the current so as things come by uh food will float into their mouth essentially okay i've seen these i can i just be the first to say i don't like them uh i just want to (laughs) ask i don't like i want to ask our good friend daddy darwin (laughs) oh my good god evolution why Why? with the tripod fish well, it's because he ran, he ran out of bits, so then he had to go down there, and he's like, I'll just put these bits together, and this is what happens. Cursed I mean, images. Yeah, if you guys haven't seen a tripod fish before, please Google it. It's quite strange. Anyway. He gave all the cute bits to the Dumbo the... octopus, and then took all the terrible bits and gave them to the tripod fish. You know, like, what are you doing down there, down buddy? There. <laughs> Things it's get in weird. the dark. No one what can see What are you, you doing down there? Yeah. They can't. Maybe it's because they can't see, and maybe they look at the tripod fish and are like, "This is for the best." <laughs> Ouch! All right, what about the blobfish? Because oh, they're not as weird underwater, though. Yeah, yeah blobfish are chill when they're in the right pressure. pressure. Yeah, yeah. If you bring them to the pressure they're supposed to be in, then they like explode <laughs> or implode. It's true. I ugh, ever since I found that out, I just makes me uncomfy looking at that photo like no wonder they're sad <laughs> kenzie yes we've Emily. discussed the abyssopelagic zone mm-hmm. what's after that there's Great more question. there's more but wait yep. there's more <laughs> what's deeper than the abyss should what's be nothing. deeper than my despair after reading the song of achilles <laughs> 
bring your shovels and start digging because you're about to find out. <laughs> Welcome to the Hatapelagic Zone, which is where I consistently exist these days. <laughs> the Hatapelagic Zone can only be found at the very bottom of marine trenches and canyons. Oof. This zone can extend past the abyss from 6,000 meters to a whopping 11,000 meters. Wait, hang on. I gotta, I gotta translate that. Okay. <laughs> 11,000 meters mm-hmm. yeah. to miles. Mm-hmm. That is... Oh, well, I didn't, I didn't spell it correctly, so Google <laughs> is confused. That is about 6.8 miles. Like, okay, when you say 11,000 meters, it doesn't, like, 6.8 miles, you're like, oh, it's just six miles. Like, but yeah, we're it's going actually sideways, very not long. down. Yes. Yeah. It's just, it's just interesting to think of it in miles instead of meters. It makes it sound a lot less dramatic. It's still very dramatic. It's it a just third of the way up Mount dramatic. Everest. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. How many Empire State buildings is that? That's what I want to know. Oh, that's a good that's a good, that's a good representation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just how tall? <laughs> We're about to do some math here, folks. It's going to take about an hour because uh, the Empire it. State Building is one thousand four hundred and fifty-four. Okay, feet well, tall. That includes antenna. Or sorry, five hundred meters. Okay, so, the Empire State Building is only point two three miles. So then stack a bunch on top of each other. So five, 30, Like a ridiculous like, bunch of them. Like 40, 40-ish Empire State Buildings. Okay. Dang. That's a better perspective, oh. and that's freaking me out more. Thanks, Empire State, Empire State Building. Building. I feel uncomfy now. <laughs> Sorry. Keep going. Keep going. Speaking of feeling uncomfy, uh, because it's so deep, the Haddle Zone, or the Hadopelagic Zone, is actually derived uh, from Hades, the Greek god of the underworld. I love that. I love Hades, personally. I think he's great, and his his wife is awesome, too. Underrated. Yes. The Hadopelagic Zone really wasn't given a distinct zone, or really wasn't even known until after the 1950s following a Soviet submarine expedition. So they had just figured out about this vertical migration, and they're like, guess what? You know that floor that we thought was the floor? You know what we thought was the ocean floor? floor. Uh, There's a lot more floor. There's a lot more floor, and there's also cracks in that floor where, like, you have these thermal vents coming up from the (laughs) Earth's mantle, so that's fun to think of. From literally the underworld. (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, But interesting fact you can actually find bacteria that metabolizes hydrogen and methane down there, hanging around some of those what they call cold seats or thermal vents, which is pretty cool. So to quote Jeff Goldblum, life, you know, well, uh, uh, find a way. Hematrophs, <laughs> man. That's where Hematrophs. the megalodon's hiding. Okay. Absolutely not. Okay, conspiracy <laughs> theorist, out the window you go. Uh, but again, you'll find mostly invertebrates and a couple of benthic fish in here. A total, there's believed to be about 400 species known to exist in Hatopelagic Zone to date, which honestly, I'm impressed anything is able to survive down there. So hats off to you, evolution. Well, you and, the, and the best part is we've only explored a very, 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 the surface. very, very small portion of the Hatopelagic uh-huh. Zone. So, Abby. Yeah. We just discussed the ocean parfait, top to bottom. What can we do to protect our parfait ocean? 
Well, we got to protect it and not just by putting it in like a glass cup and making it look nice for Donkey and Shrek. Um, there's other things we got to do. One of the biggest ones is stop using single use plastic. Gosh darn it, or at least recycle it. Because there was a plastic bag found at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is over 10,000 milliliters below the ocean surface, which we've discussed as many Empire State buildings. Many Empire State buildings. <laughs> which is like, come on, guys. It's ridiculous. Also, it's in our many. blood now. So, and it's know. in our blood now, which is like not in the ocean. But like if you're in the ocean, I guess then it is. But I mean, so many animals have trash and garbage in their bodies. And obviously it's affecting really far down there are some really interesting articles talking about the ethics of removing this plastic because many things have now become ecosystems just because animals are living on them or in these plastic containers that have floated all the way down but we don't want that to become the norm we want that to stop so bring your own bags byob i think that's probably the best message that we've got for I would say that and uh, our most favorite message, which is learn more. Yeah. Uh, Learn more about the ocean. There's all kinds of fun things in there. Go visit zoos to learn more about the epipelagic and maybe the mesopelagic zones. Um, We have not found a sustainable way to mimic any other kind of water pressure. So that is why. We should keep those things deep in the ocean where they belong. With no light where they belong. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. but it's also, like, every time a kid's like, why don't we have a blobfish? I'm like, they would not survive for very long out here. Um, they'd just be, like, a plastic bag, which brings us back full circle to recycling. Well, and he wouldn't look like a blob, so he wouldn't be that exciting either. No, people wouldn't be as excited if they saw what they actually looked like. Um, as far as announcements go, please subscribe to our show. We keep forgetting to say this, but I think it's important. Subscribe to our show. Rate us five stars and tell your friends about the Conservation Queens podcast because we think we're pretty funny. Um, you've told us that we're funny. We're at least tolerable. Yeah, we got lots of five stars, but we'd like more. Sh- spreading the word is the best way to get other people to listen to our podcast. If you want to take a step farther, you can join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash conservationqueenspodcast. That is our members-only website where you can get bonus content and learn about why Nemo was wrong Hmm. Um, and many other disturbing things. Probably a very, uh, probably another bonus episode coming soon. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do another one. Let us know what you want to hear about, patrons. For only $5 a month, you can be a beluga babe. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you're not interested in giving us money, that's okay. Support us on Instagram or Facebook at Conservation Queens Podcast. Uh, do we have? Oh, and if you want to email us, we are Conservation Queens Podcast at gmail.com. We are literally willing to talk about anything. We love talking to our listeners, it's really fun for us. Yeah. Anybody got anything else? I, I, I feel like I'm forgetting something. I think that's really it. We uh, we wrapped that one up nicely. Oh, yeah. very nice. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us this week. Now go out there, stay above the ocean surface because <laughs> there's <laughs> death beneath and stay sustainable. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Go read Song of Achilles so you can hang out with me in the abyssal pelagic zone. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,